Welcome to A Step Towards Health, a dedicated set of interviews with therapists, counselors, and specialists from across the world, breaking down stigmas, clearing up misconceptions, and bringing you the information about therapy and how to make getting help easier. Well, at least we're trying our best. With this series, we're hoping to give you some form of clarity of what therapy is, what to expect from it, and how to access it. We will also be trying our level best to get the answers to the questions sent in from these experts. But please note this is for educational and understanding purposes only. I would also like to issue a trigger warning before we begin. The discussion, the questions, they all range over topics of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide, addictions, eating disorders, sexual assault, and more. Please take care while you listen to these episodes. If any of these discussions are triggering for you or bring up any negative feelings, please take care. If you still wish to listen, please do so with a friend or someone you trust around. If this isn't immediately available, please wait till you find yourself in the right headspace and with the right tools and environment accessible to get into such a discussion. Thank you and take care. Joining us today is Aisha Shabazz. is a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, consultant, and solo private practitioner, practice creator with a background in medical social work. In the spring of 2020, in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic, Aisha established her private practice, Enjoy Time Wellness, which offers individual and group therapy to socially conscious and creative teens, young adults, and human beings who are seeking to relieve anxiety release insecurity and build confidence. Her practice is value-based and founded on the principles of diversity, equity and inclusion, decolonization and anti-racism. Through her consulting firm, Aisha serves as a career strategist to marginalize mental health therapists and helping professionals who are striving to offer high quality care to their client and patient populations without sacrificing their own mental health and well-being in the process. Aisha addresses not only the impact of employee exploitation, toxic working environments, and burnout that occurs in the helping industry. She also offers practical guidance on how therapists and helping professionals can creatively use their unique technical skills to expand into entrepreneurship. Aisha believes in a mind-body approach to health and wellness and is a practitioner and teacher of yoga and meditation and is an avid writer. We are so, so grateful that Aisha has taken time to join us today. Thank you. I cannot begin to express my gratitude, honestly. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. I'm super excited. (laughs) Um, So when I first met you, I told you about how one really important part about this project is helping us get the information about how one would go about accessing therapy. Um, you're based in the U.S. Could you tell us a little bit about how one would go about accessing therapy in your state specifically? Yes, yeah, so I'm located in Pennsylvania, and one of the complicated things about accessing therapy in the United States is that each practitioner is limited by the state that they're licensed in. So if you do not, as, a, as someone who is seeking therapy, if you don't live in the state that your therapist is licensed, then you can't access that therapist. So during the global pandemic, a lot of therapists who may have only thought about being licensed in one state took it upon themselves to be licensed in multiple states so that they can help people because 
we understand that people move around, they have family and friends in different places. So currently I hold a license in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and the state of Rhode Island. Wow, that's incredible. Um, thank you. Uh, so uh, I read this article on your website and it really piqued my interest and I, I specifically asked you if, if we could talk a little bit more about that because I think this is something people maybe have heard the term but probably don't really understand it. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the paradox of high functioning anxiety? Like how would you describe it? Yeah, so high functioning anxiety really is this inside outside disparity where on the outside everything looks cool calm and collected you're the person that has all of your life together or presumably all together people go to you as their first person to help them out with all things but on the inside you're truly struggling you feel like you don't have it all together that there's a lot of chaos going on within and so the the plague of having this inside outside not matching is that you're constantly having to ebb and flow between who am I showing my true self to and who am I not showing my true self to and that can truly be very exhausting. The other aspect of high functioning anxiety is that most people are characterized as high performers or high achievers. So with that comes along perfectionism where they feel like if they were to show aspects of themselves that are not put together, then that would in turn sacrifice some of the perks and benefits that they've been able to acquire in life, which is most often self-respect, um, a quote-unquote great reputation. And in the working world, most of the time, high-functioning individuals are given a good old pat on the back because they are able to function under high levels of stress where, you know, you might talk to someone and they might say, I was really nervous. And then they, their response is, I couldn't tell. That's one of the things that if someone is experiencing high functioning anxiety, that is probably one of the most debilitating responses that they could hear because it's like, that means you don't see me. That means that you don't know what I'm really struggling through. Sometimes people feel a sense of relief. It's like, oh, great. You couldn't tell because I was really sweating up there. Mm -hmm. But it really is a heavy burden to carry. What, what I'm thinking about is like some, someone who probably struggles with high functioning anxiety would probably really struggle because of that toxic culture of productivity as well. I think uh, you're constant, like you're only being productive if you're constantly working and with someone who probably struggles with high functioning anxiety it's probably an added stress I mean I'm just thinking about like um, I, I, I do have a, a bit of uh, I mean I have been diagnosed with anxiety and, and I do have this practice of like constantly doing work but I don't think I'm in the same bracket as this but it is interesting to like understand from your point of view. Yes, yeah, so the, the concept of productivity and always being productive is a manifestation of perfectionism. It also has a tendency to seep into the workplace, which is why it's so subversive and so subtle, where people are not seeing themselves as having a challenge because, well, that's what's expected of me. I'm expected to, to squeeze every ounce of work out of a minute. 
And so that's why a lot of these things go undetected and undiagnosed because the society in which we live in is expecting us to, to live and function at that high level when it's not sustainable to be like that at all points of our life. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure a lot of people will be able to relate to what you're saying right now. And I think just like being able to relate, you're validating them. Like you mentioned uh, that statement about how if you've said it to someone that it didn't look like it and you uh, like you kind of described it that like okay you're not seeing what I'm going through but you're just saying that this happens and I'm, I'm pretty sure that right now they're thinking like I feel seen. Yeah that really is the intention of talking about these topics of mental health is to help people feel validated in their experience but then also to limit this fear of like I must be the only one. I absolutely agree. That is kind of the core um, principle behind the creation of Mind Matters as well, like creating that sense of community where people understand that they what they're feeling, it's it's not just them, they aren't alone, and that there are people with similar experiences and that to help validate them and their experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so just building on, uh, on anxiety, could you tell us a little bit about your approach to treating anxiety and also um, could you share a little bit about your anxiety relief program? Yes. So how I treat anxiety is it really is focusing on the person first. I'm asking details about their lived experience without putting it in the context of, oh, you have anxiety. So I'm really looking at how is their sleep? What are their eating habits? How are they functioning in day-to-day -day life? And then we're determining whether or not that is the clinical diagnosis of anxiety. Earlier, you asked the question of how do people in the United States access mental health? Most people in the United States access mental health through their healthcare insurance. And most people in the United States can only access mental or health insurance through their employer. Now, because of certain legislation, there has been an opportunity for people to access health care and insurance outside of employment, but the majority of people still access it through an employer. So the reason why I point that out is because health insurance companies require us to diagnose someone in order to justify why they're getting a particular service. So a lot of times people will feel very uncomfortable with saying they have a certain mental health diagnosis. And how I approach it is it's a necessary component if you want to use your health insurance, but it's not something that I am striving to pigeonhole you in. I truly am looking at what your lived experience is like. And if we have a common language that we're speaking, whether it's sleepless nights, restlessness, racing thoughts, that's the focus. It really isn't about the diagnosis itself. But in regards to treating anxiety, for, I ask a lot of questions and it's questions within the context of a conversation. I ask my clients to tell me stories about their life. How, are, how have they lived and how are they living? And where do they see themselves really flourishing in life? And then trying to connect those pieces together so that they're using therapy as a tool and not as a dependent resource to help them function in life. Because my approach is really, let's get you closer to where you wanna be so that you can live your life more fully. I 
I never want my clients to feel like therapy is the only way for them to find relief. I want them to use therapy as one of the many options to find relief in their life. I really like the differentiation that you made. It's not a tool, but it's one of your coping mechanisms. Um, I think um, not being overly dependent is something so important because I think just like being practical and like being realistic, there might be situations where you may not be able to access therapy for a certain amount of time or you don't have um, the space to go to the same therapist. And if someone was to be overly dependent on one particular tool and not have access to it, I'm guessing it would be much more detrimental to them as opposed to any sort of like good that used to come out of it. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Sneha. It's one of those things where if we, if people feel like they have options, they're less likely to feel isolated and alone. So if people have come to this point to therapy in a moment of crisis or a moment of like, I've hit rock bottom in my life and they feel like therapy is the only thing that's going to help them, it puts the stakes really high and it doesn't really allow more room for the process of therapy to take place. But if they can see therapy as an option, one of many options to help them find relief, then they can enter into the process of therapy with a little bit more ease and comfort as we try to narrow down how can we get you closer to living the life that feels good to you. I think it's such a healthy approach to it as well. Like you're not making someone overly dependent and they're not like, it's almost like you're avoiding an addiction of sorts. Yes, there are people that do find themselves in this, you know, well, just tell me what I need to know so that I can feel better. And in the way in which I practice therapy, it's a collaborative process where I'm not giving you prescriptions per se of like, if you do this, then this will happen. It's more or less a guess and check. And the reason why I take that approach is because if I was to essentially size you up in our 15 minute consultation and say, I know exactly what you need. Then we're taking the approach of like the colonizer dictating what your care is going to be like. And that's the last thing that I want to do when people are coming to me for support. What I really want is for people to feel like they're in a collaborative process where they are in the driver's seat and I'm guiding them through this process, making sure that you know, we don't hit any speed bumps too early or too fast, making sure that if we need to stop a little bit and just take a breather, that we can do that. So truly the idea is to create a safe space and then also make sure that we're going at a pace that is going to bring about more helpfulness than harmfulness. Um, the other point that I wanted to bring up is that when we're going to someone and we're seeking support, like I know for a fact that therapy is going to be useful for me. I think we also have to consider the level of input that you're going to put into that therapeutic process. So I believe that therapy shouldn't be this, the therapist is telling me everything that I need to know, but also the therapist isn't doing all of the work. It is, it's truly collaborative. So there's work that both the therapist and the client have to do in session, but most of the work is happening outside of the session. In the States, on average, the sessions last a little bit less than an hour. That's one small fraction of time that you have. And the rest of the time, you're living your life outside of this therapy room. 
So it's truly important to see the benefits of therapy by actually putting into practice, testing out things that you've talked out with your therapist, also coming back with feedback. You know, sometimes people often they'll write down what their week was like. If I'm seeing them weekly, they'll say, okay, these are some things that happened this week that I want to go through with you. Let's brainstorm to figure out how this cannot happen again, or if I can decrease any um, incidents that happen during the week. And so with anxiety, we're often looking at how anxiety manifests for that particular person, because anxiety doesn't look the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a body manifestation where sometimes people think that they're having an allergic reaction and it's actually their body responding in an adverse way to stress. Sometimes people report like gastrointestinal issues where they're consistently going to a physician saying, you know, there has to be something wrong with my digestive system. And the physician is saying, we ran all the diagnostic tests. I don't see anything. It's, it could be a possibility that anxiety is um, the culprit of the discomfort. And oftentimes I get a lot of referrals from medical providers saying, you know, I think my patient needs to see a mental health provider that specializes in anxiety because we've ran the gamut and nothing seems to be working. Um, The other part that anxiety impacts, again, I mentioned sleep. So anxiety can, can wreak havoc on your sleep patterns. And a lot of my clients report that they can't remember the last time that they had a good night's sleep. And it's not because they have sleep apnea or they um, are, they have insomnia, like traditional form of insomnia. It's the idea that racing thoughts and overwhelming physical sensation of anxiety, maybe like heart racing, could cause them to have so much discomfort that they can't sleep throughout the night. So again, I cannot emphasize enough that it's, it's very important for, and for any of like the clinical providers that are listening to your podcast to know that the less cookie cutter approach that you can take with your clients, the better, because we really want our clients to be telling us in their own words, what their experience is like, so that we can offer the most effective um, treatment recommendations. That's, uh, that makes so much sense. Uh, I was just thinking um, my own uh, little experience that I had um, a couple of years ago, I had an intense amount of stress with, uh, finals and uh, people in my like I had known that I have physical reactions like with my anxiety it does like manifest into like physical reactions for me and this was the first time that people around me had actually seen it and uh, before a couple of finals I my mouth actually uh, I broke out into complete ulcers my entire mouth is filled with ulcers and people around me would like this isn't anything related to your head and was continuously and they were like oh it's a b complex um uh, you have a like you're deficient in b complex and and at that point in time i just wanted to like sort of i use that as an example of like trying to show them that your mental health issues do manifest in your physical body as well so i actually told them let's go take a blood test right now and i will prove to you that i have no deficiency whatsoever and that was the first time that they actually saw it uh, we did the test and I didn't have any deficiency, but right after like the, the final that was causing me that much anxiety was done a few hours later, it was physically seen how my ulcers were actually reducing. And that's when mm-hmm. it was the first time people noticed that 
there is like this connection between your physical health and your mental health like it does like manifest into this one and that's what kind of started the conversation for them as well so when you were talking about that it made a lot of sense and even the sleep thing i could relate to a lot of that yeah i wish more people really recognized the relationship between the physical body um and the emotional well-being that we have they really are interconnected and i don't believe that they're separate at all and um, so many cultures from around the world have proven this time and time again, like thousands and thousands of years ago. And I'm, I'm hoping that the modern world will be able to catch up to that soon so that we can destigmatize it a little bit more. Because yeah, if people, exactly, because if people are able to um, feel okay and having a yearly physical or going to their primary care provider, you know, let's continue to talk about this so that people feel just as comfortable going to a therapist and saying, yes, I have a therapist. I mean, exactly. I mean, people, we're, we're never hesitant to go to see a doctor when we have a headache that hasn't gone for about a week or a cold that hasn't like relieved, uh, relieved us or we've, we've broken a bone, but like the moment it's, it's, it's with your head, like there's just so many questions like why, what, no, I can handle it myself. That, that, exactly. that I can handle it myself and that you're supposed to handle it yourself is just something is like this conditioning that we've had for years and years and I think just having these kind of conversations and like normalizing it like okay I, I know I have I'm struggling I needed help and I went and decided to get help I think the more we can have these kind of conversations is only how you break down that notion like I can do it myself yes yes and that idea of I can do it myself that toxic individualism plays a lot into this idea of decolonizing institutions, decolonizing our mindset. And, you know, there are a lot of scholars out there and social justice advocates that believe that these systems of oppression really do have, like they're toxic tendrils in every fiber of our lived experience. So this idea of I can do this all on my own individualism it's said to be a, a characteristic of white supremacy. Um, perfectionism, again, is said to be a characteristic of white supremacy as well. And so that's one idea that I talk with my clients with, as well as the therapist that I mentor, is let's look at all the different aspects of the system of oppression and see how that shows up in the therapy room. Let's see how that shows up in life. And if we're able to look at this problem in a different way, then it's possible that we'll be able to do things differently and more effective to alleviate all of this pain and harm that has been, as you put it, like been going on for years and years. It's like, it's, you know, systems of oppression aren't new, right? Yeah, but our idea and our understanding of it is new because we live in a global world where we're having more conversations about this with people from all walks of life. And it's like, oh, you have that experience? I have that experience too. That's interesting. So the more that we become curious about these systems of oppression, the more likely we are to dismantle them and not be as affected by them over time. Absolutely. Um, and, and just to like continue on this, um, uh, one thing that I talked to you about for the first time I met as, uh, met you as well, like it was so important that we we have these important conversations and, and also recognizing that how mental health is just perceived differently in different communities. And like the conversation is at different stages. 
like I, I I told you about like in the Indian culture, it's it's basically non-existent in in my own uh, in my own uh, family itself. We don't have conversations. We still haven't had a conversation. And and with my with, uh, about my um, experience, like I I lost my brother about six and a half years ago, and we still haven't had a conversation about that till date. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of uh, state of how things are in different parts of the world. Like that's something I've also been able to learn having these kind of conversations with people from all around the globe and kind of understanding where mental health conversations are. Um, so just to build on that, and I want to talk about um, the conversation of mental health and the perception of mental health in the Black community, if you're comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll preface it with this, that I don't represent the entire Black community um, in the United States. I, I occupy a very small aspect of the diaspora. And so from my lived experience being a descendant of someone or a descendant of people who have been enslaved, I will say that currently in my experience in the Black community, someone who identifies as an African-American in the United States, that there is still this perception of, well, prayer will fix everything. Religion will fix what we have seen as a burden on our heart and our soul. And there is a significance to having spirituality in life. No doubt about that. If you're more science and research-based, research shows that if you believe in a higher power of some sort, whether it's mother nature, the universe, whatever you call that higher power, it is more likely to have a positive impact on your well-being. What I'm talking about is organized religion. So there is a dramatic difference between spirituality and organized religion. And when we put people in positions where they are unable to think critically beyond the organized religion, that's where we have problems. And so in the Black community, most people identify as Christian, regardless of the denomination. Overall, most of them identify as Christian. And one of the biggest shakeups that has been happening in the spheres that I navigate over the past couple of years is recognizing that when people were enslaved, they were colonized through Christianity. And so a lot of people are having these complex feelings around, well, how is this part of my lived experience when enslaved ancestors were colonized through this organized religion? That's the first thing. And that's like for a larger, like robust (laughs) discussion beyond this podcast. But I bring it up to say that if we are to be in a community where religion is the focus of and the solution to all of our problems, it's almost as if we're dismissing their lived experience. So there's this context called spiritual bypassing, where it's like, oh, if you pray about it, it will go away. You're essentially bypassing the pain that the person is identifying for them. Now, you could take that piece of advice the same way that you would hear someone say, oh, you're anxious, why don't you just relax, right? Like, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. If I just thought of relaxing, I would have relaxed a long time ago, right? It's absolutely absurd. And the same applies for someone to say, just pray about it and you'll feel better. So I always like to encourage people that if they don't feel like they're being attended to or heard, 
from their community and they're being spiritually bypassed, it's helpful to find a community that also feels the same way. So if you have a collection of friends or either a subset of your family that is just like, you know what? I'm really annoyed at the fact that they always tell me to pray about it. Like I need other solutions. Like do you have anything else for me? And talk amongst yourselves to figure out why that is so frustrating for you and why that is so diminishing and invalidating. The second thing is, is if you're in a position to consider therapy as one of the tools to help you in your life, it might be helpful for you to talk to that therapist during the consultation period of, well, how does religion and spirituality show up in our therapy sessions? Because you might want someone that understands the community that you come from, and you might not. So I always say, you know, really focus on what you want and what you don't want out of your therapy sessions by asking the questions to the therapist directly. But overall, I think the Black community in the United States has come a long way with mental health. We have a lot of initiatives here that um, are focusing on encouraging Black identified individuals to seek therapy. But one of the continued challenges is access to those therapists. So um, from a statistical standpoint, how it breaks down ethnically, most of the providers of mental health are white identified individuals. So for people that have experienced uh, racial-based trauma or discrimination, they might not feel comfortable going to a therapist that doesn't at least identify as a person of color because they, they wouldn't inherently understand what it means to experience racism. So I don't necessarily think it's an absolute criteria, but there are folks in the world that would prefer to at least have this therapeutic approach from someone that identifies or at least occupies a similar corner of their life. So, but in my practice, I serve all people from all walks of life, ethnicities, nationalities, spirituality, and the like, gender identities, because that is what is important to me. And so again, I would also, for anybody that's considering finding a therapist or considering therapy to ask, like, what is the breakdown of your client population? Like, are you seeing people that look like me and occupy uh, a similar space in the world, because I think that really tunes into their ability to hold space for you, even mm -hmm. if they can identify identically with your lived experience. That makes a lot of sense. It, it kind of comes back to like how the culture and the upbringing of ours has such a huge impact on our mental health. And it would, it would sort of like frame the way that we approach things and how we think about things. And obviously someone who understands where that particular thought is coming from would have uh, you'd find uh, you'd be able to create a better rapport and like actually sort of delve into those things and like the treatment would be according to that as well so that actually does make a lot of sense uh, I'm uh, again I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful uh, for this entire like for this conversation and this project because I'm personally learning so much like I'm taking away so much information uh, that's clearly it's opening my eyes to things that I didn't know about and and it's given me so much food for thought and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm certain that even the listeners eventually when we release this episode are also going to have that same kind of experience uh, but like just to continue on our current discussion 
What do you think is the reason for this built-up stigma around mental health, especially in the Black community? I think part of the reason is that historically, we were not given an opportunity to take care of ourselves. Historically, in the United States, Black-identified people were expected to work and not rest. You don't need to take care of yourself because you're not even a person, you're a piece of property. And so to be able to counteract all of that generational trauma is very difficult. And, you know, a lot of times people say like, oh, that was over 400 years ago. Well, I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. When we think about the civil rights movement, like to this day, people are still alive that were experiencing the civil rights movement. So to again, diminish and invalidate the experiences and say like, oh, that was your ancestors. We're like, no, we're actually still living these moments. So I think that's part of it is the historical trauma that has gone on. The other thing is, is that there are so many aspects in the United States that are diminishing lived experiences of black identified people that it is nearly, it feels nearly impossible to swim against that toxic current. So um, just a few days ago, Derek Chauvin was sentenced for the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, at multiple levels of the trial, there were these moments of letdown where people could not feel like they could be, they could feel vindicated by this justice because they knew that it wasn't going to last right? It's like, oh, he was sentenced for, I believe it was 22 and a half years. Yeah. And people are saying, but he probably won't serve the whole time, you know? Um, so I think it's just, just kind of being beat down over and over century after century, you lose hope. And so this idea that someone is painting like, oh, if you go to therapy, things will be better. And it's like, really, is it really going to be better? Because it's probably not. And so I think part of the stigma is that people just don't believe that talking to someone on a regular basis is going to help them feel better because the systems of oppression are built to tear us down and not to lift us up. So it is very hard to hold on to hope when things feel and are really hopeless for a lot of people. That makes so much sense. The years and years of conditioning and being told um... And, and especially the intergenerational trauma. I mean, of, of course, I mean, and I understand like people saying that it wasn't that long ago. It's again, it's invalidating experiences and it's- it's And it's just not true. Like, yeah, absolutely. you know, my, my mother, she is from the South and she remembers the day that her school was integrated. And she remembers the day that her mom asked her, do you want to go to an integrated school or do you want to stay at the school for black children? Like my mom. So it wasn't that long ago. And so I think at any point, if someone says to you, you know, oh, that was so long ago, challenge them in that moment, if you feel safe enough to do so, to say, well, how long ago is long ago? Give them some facts, give them some details, because you can't tell me that my mother, who's in her mid 60s, was a long time ago. She has a lot of life to live, right? So, the other thing that I would encourage people to hold on to whenever they're feeling invalidated by their lived experience or the lived experience of their family or ancestry is 
to create community that validates your experience. I can't say that enough. I'm not saying to remove yourself from the society that you're living in, because I think change does have to happen within, but create that sense of safety in the community that you're in, because I, I tell you, you are not alone in your experience. And because we live in a global society, connecting to online resources, online communities, is the best way. If you feel like I am the only one, Aisha, I'm the only person that lives in my town, my county, my village that thinks this way and that has this experience. The benefit of having access to podcasts like these is that there are many listeners out there that have similar experiences and you can connect with them in order to say, wow, you're not alone. I've had this experience. Let's support each other through this journey until something else can be different. This uh, this is a, it's really interesting because a couple of days ago I had a conversation um, about how community can be a coping tool and we were kind of Absolutely. breaking down like how it's such an important aspect of life and like as human beings we want to connect and just the the having a space where someone has, has a shared experience, it creates a bond between people. There's a, there's a level of trust. And again, it's about validating experiences and like just feeling seen. And I, I, I truly believe community can be such a huge, huge, uh, an effective coping tool, not just a coping tool, but something that, that creates this sort of, uh, I don't know, a space where we feel safe and like seen. And, and that's like a game changer when it comes to like just living life. I agree with you 110%. Absolutely. Community is one of those things where if you have it, you know it. And if you don't have it, you know it. And if, if the global pandemic has taught us anything, it's that community is the thing that keeps us thriving in life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to build on that, like, uh, I, I think... Uh, why would you describe decolonization of therapy is so important and like what what role of racial justice is in this particular field like just building on what we've been talking about already yeah so decolonizing mental health and therapy and therapeutic techniques is important because we have to remember who created it so the the founders of therapy and therapeutic practices were typically white men and so it is, it is vital for us to look at all of the techniques and tools and strategies that were created to keep in mind and ask questions like, who is this created for? Who is this meant to help and to serve? Is there a different way of looking at things so that this can be effective for multiple communities across the globe? And if it's not, can we alter it so that it can be effective? So again, looking at that top-down approach, like that doesn't work in a lot of different ways. And so can we create things in a more collaborative way? I think is the biggest part of decolonizing mental health and therapy is, can there be a breakdown of this hierarchy of clinician client? And can we just meet in the middle and just say, what is it that you were looking for from therapy? Let me see if that's a possibility so that we can work together towards a common goal. Um, as far as how social justice infuses into this initiative is that I think we have to look at it from multiple fields, right? We have to look at it from the legislation aspect of like what laws are put in to protect people so that we can understand people's lived experiences. So 
for example, right now, there's a lot, there's a lot of things happening <laughs> in the United States as we speak. But one of the topics that's coming up a lot is this idea of school boards teaching critical race theory. And essentially mm -hmm. what it is, is can we look at a different perspective of what history was like and what stories we were told about what history has been? Um, the second thing is coming up again is this idea of trans identified individuals not having access and being treated like human beings mm -hmm. and many school boards around the southern part of the United States are asking school boards to not allow school professionals and staff to address trans individuals by their their gender identity mm -hmm. by their name and so these are fundamental things. Call someone by their name, Absolutely. identify them based on their pronouns. And yet there are people around the country that are fighting against these human rights. And so the reason why social justice fits in is that if we are not looking at the systems that are used and the institutions that are used to oppress people, we're doing half of the work. And so obviously racial um, social advocacy fits into that as well, because historically in the United States, the people that were prevented from accessing education were people of color um, and not exclusively black people, um, but there were also Asian individuals and indigenous populations of the United States. And so if we're looking at all of the populations of people that were colonized for the benefit of the colonizers of the United States, we, it, is, it is imperative that we look at how is that being influenced in institutions like healthcare, education, and mental health. So, and those are just three. I mean, there are so many things that we interface with, the financial industry, the banking industry, the legal system, and, and, and. But, you can't have one without the other. And if we are refusing to look at the social justice impact where I don't believe that as clinicians, we're doing our job and we're not I'm serving so much our sense. clients. It's so widespread and, and it's, it's so, it's so widespread and like it really is affecting every different facet and every different field. And it makes a lot of sense that you have to like consider all of it when you're looking into treating someone as well. And especially mm -hmm. in the field, like whether it's your resources that's coming up and all of it, like it makes a lot of sense. But again, this is something I'm learning as well. Like, of course, I, I, I mean, I was aware of, of the, the, the critical race theory a little bit uh, about the legislation. And, but that again is just because, uh, like I've mentioned, my field is law and international law is something that I'm right. interested in. So out of, out of the, the interest in that field i do i do read a lot so i i was aware a bit about all of this but clearly i i cannot say that i'm completely worse with exactly what's going on so again these kind of conversations keep the information flowing and like it really pushes you into reading more and understanding more so thank you for bringing that up of course of course and it's nearly impossible to know all of the things that are happening in all corners of the world so um, I appreciate your, your humbleness in that and making an effort to learn. And I am doing the same, you know, of all of the many places around the world that are struggling. It's, it's difficult to keep up. But I think if, if our intention really is to serve people with a full 
heart and an open mind, then it, it's okay if we are, you know, almost kind of staying in our corner of the world. Like if, if legal is your corner of the world and you're a mental health advocate, I see you're knocking it out of the park. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but you know what, uh, when you mentioned this, I think what kind of comes into my head is like this sort of uh, the concept of perfectionism and in, in activism, like I think uh, that's such a, it's such a heavy um, experience like individuals that are trying to like make a difference and they, they constantly feel like okay if I'm not doing it 100% right am I doing it right at all and I think mm-hmm. that itself can be a discussion on its own but that's kind of like what immediately came into my mind when we were talking about this yeah absolutely I feel like that would be such a great podcast episode I would absolutely love to do it <laughs> 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 but um like just to like continue, like, um, how does discrimination and systems of oppression impact someone's relationship with anxiety? Let's let, yes. we go a little bit more specific now. Yes, yes. So I'll use it in the context of work because most of us spend most of our time, if we're, if we're working, we're spending most of our life working. If we're a student, we're spending most of our time at school. So if you are being discriminated against in the workplace and you are expected to go there a majority of your waking hours you're under a significant amount of stress we're not knowing what's right and what's wrong what rules to play by what rules that are going to get you in trouble is it safe or is it unsafe so being in this constant state of awareness And not awareness meaning like mindfulness awareness, but awareness being like, is there danger around every corner I'm turning? That in and of itself is putting the body in this constant fight, flight, freeze, or fawn position. And that is the basis for how I teach people about anxiety is that where is your lived experience? Is it in this fight stage where you're just like, I'm ready to go? Is it in the freeze stage, which is like, I have no idea what to do. I'm just going to park it right here because I'm immobilized. Is it in this light stage where it's like, I got to get out of here. I don't even know up from down, but I just know it's not safe. Or are you in this fawn stage, which is like, I'm not really sure what to do, but what I am going to do is try to fall in love with the thing that's attacking me so that it doesn't hurt me more than it already has. So When we're in this constant state of heightened awareness, it causes this dramatic impact, not only on our brain, the, our organ, the brain, but also on the different um, aspects of the body. And when we're looking at that mind-body combination, our body can only withstand a certain amount of stress before it starts to go into survival mode. So if you imagine that you're going to a workplace that you're being discriminated against, and then you're having to function in a heightened state because you are overwhelmed and then feeling like you're in survival mode, some things start to shut down. And so how discrimination impacts anxiety is that it will often heighten the intensity of anxiety where you get that restlessness that inability to eat, maybe nausea, maybe these racing thoughts, second guessing yourself, maybe I should say this, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I need to walk on eggshells, maybe I don't. So it's always like you're tiptoeing around things all the time, trying to see like, am I going to hit a landmine? Am I not? 
that is truly how discrimination impacts anxiety. It just cranks it up a thousand notches. I can't even imagine how mentally exhausting it would be like 24 seven to be this, this aware of, of the possible like harm that could happen. And, and thank you for breaking down that fight or flight freeze and fawn uh, uh, states of uh, existence. I recently only understood like, I think uh, like a common a common individual only knows about fight or flight. I mean, that's what I had known. Freeze was something I recently learned through one of these discussions itself. And now again, another, the fun one is something else that now I've learned. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating way to conceptualize anxiety. And that's one of the things that I really love about my work is that I do get an opportunity to teach people about these concepts that really seem on its surface for some people super complex and for others it's like oh it's it's just anxiety like it's fine you know and it's like for some people it is fine right because anxiety is a natural phenomenon that happens in our body it's the thing that keeps us alive right if we didn't have anxiety existing in our body on some level if we saw a stoplight and then we saw a car coming, we wouldn't be able to be like, oh, keep yourself on the curb because I am potentially in danger, right? It would just be like this carefree, loose abandon. You know, we wouldn't get this sense of like, maybe I should go this way instead of that way. So anxiety is not the problem. It, the problem becomes when anxiety becomes unmanageable. The problem becomes when anxiety is ruling your life. So if you are immobilized by anxiety, that's the problem. If you are so afraid because of anxiety, that's the problem. So I can't emphasize that enough because a lot of times people will say like, so what? And I'm like, well, you don't have the same lived experience as everybody else. So again, let's not invalidate people. Let's ask questions, let's get curious just to build on that like how would you sort of describe like what happens when we don't effectively manage this kind of anxiety yeah so it all goes back down to the response of our body right so if we are in a heightened state of stress eventually our body will not respond accurately to external stimuli so we do like say, for instance, I'm in a room right now, if someone was to knock on the door and I was to literally jump out of my chair and scream. That is not a, a typical response for someone knocking on the door, right? So we wanna be able to notice that, are we accurately or congruently responding to external stimuli? If we notice that we're not, then something needs to be discussed a little bit further. Another example that I can give you is a lot of my clients, they might describe anxiety feeling on edge. Like if someone was to ask them, like, how was your day? They would like get an attitude. Like, what do you mean? How was my day? How was my day supposed to be? Right. And then they internally, they're just like, why did I respond that way? That was weird. Like, I don't understand why I just said that. That was a normal question for someone to ask. Right. So sometimes it's, us recognizing that I am not responding typically to an external stimulus. And sometimes people are telling us like, hey, you seem a little on edge or are you okay? 
Um, so that's one of the biggest things is that that's how you know that anxiety is ruling your life when you're responding to external stimuli in a, in a more intense way than is necessary. You know, one of the things that I really wanted with this particular series is sort of, sort of like explain these kind of concepts in ways that we can really understand and like picture it and visualize it. And you're just giving these wonderful analogies and like examples that are really like breaking it down and so easy to understand. And it's like uh, someone's wound up so much and after a certain point, like your example of the knocking of the door, if someone were to knock on the door and you jump up and scream, like I think anyone would understand that's an, that's an extreme reaction for a very small, um, an extreme reaction for a very small action. And, and just like to understand that, I think, thank you. I mean, that's, that's what I basically want to say because that's, that's, that's what we wanted to do with this series. Like, sort of, like I mentioned to you, in this field, there's just so many terms and te technicalities. I think it gets lost in translation and people are so like hesitant because of like these very specific medical jargon or whatever it is to like understand more. And maybe sometimes it just goes over their head. So when you break it down like this so simple, it's so easy to understand. And like, I know it's, it's making a lot of sense to me and, and this is nothing. My field is not this at all in any way, in any shape, size or form. Like I can break down legislations for you, but I cannot understand how the brain works, but I am able to in the way that you're breaking it down for me right now. I appreciate that. And the way that I describe and teach about anxiety with here on this podcast is the same way that I talk to my clients about it. Um, I really feel like you have to be able to, I, I remember one of my professors saying in college that if you cannot teach someone who has no idea what you do about what you do, then you don't know it well enough. And so I really learned at a very early age in my career of like, how do you describe what you do to people so that they don't get lost, so that they understand how it's relevant to them. And I appreciate your feedback so much because I think Therapy is also one of those ways that we can just naturally relate to people. We're just, we're having a conversation. We're talking. We tell stories to one another all day. Just tell me a story. Tell me what's going on in your life. It doesn't have to be this big grandiose terms and this and that. I mean, I studied neuroscience as a college student, so I can, I can go full on with the neurotransmitters and the parts of the brain, but it's like, for what purpose, right? I don't, I don't want to lose the intention behind this, which is to have a conversation with people who want to understand anxiety in a more tangible way. And that is decolonizing, making sure that things are not so upper echelon that people get super lost. It's like, oh, well, I guess she knows what she's talking about because she's a therapist and I, I'm afraid to ask her what she really meant. So I'm just not going to bother. Like, no, if at any point in time someone has a question about what I've said, I don't want you to take my um, position or my words as the gospel. I want you to challenge and ask. So I always invite people to do that, whether it's a client, um, a workshop that I'm doing, anybody that I'm mentoring, because that is the act of decolonizing any institution is asking questions. That is incredible. And I did not know about the neuroscience bit. <laughs> <laughs> but no but just that that's exactly what i mean like you could have easily used these extreme terms to sort of like 
give a very textbook explanation about everything, but you've used such understandable and relatable analogies, it really makes so much sense. And like, I've actually grasped the concept so well, and it's just in one conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, so we talked about what happens when we don't effectively manage anxiety. So could you maybe tell us a little bit, uh, maybe some suggestions or like coping mechanisms for when anxiety is operating at such an intense level? Yeah, so one way is to focus on prevention. And I'm not saying that if you do have anxiety, like all hope is lost, like, oh, well, I can't prevent it because it's already here. What I mean is if you know that there is a specific moment that anxiety really kicks up, let's say anxiety kicks up at nighttime and you're just like, I cannot sleep. My anxiety is the highest at night. One thing to do is to practice a coping skill before your bedtime. The reason why you do this is because you want to get your mind and your body settled before that time approaches. Because if you create this direct relationship with, I do this one thing when I am super stressed, it is automatically creating that relationship so that it does, it's ineffective, the coping skill. So the more often you do it outside of the high impact stress moment, the more likely it is to be um, useful to help you reduce the feelings of anxiety or at least cause a little bit more relief. So an example that I can give is there are a lot of people who say like, oh, practice yoga, right? Oh, you have anxiety? Practice yoga. You'll feel so much better. Like, please stop telling people that. What would be more effective is asking people, what are you currently doing to relieve your stress? Have them tell you, oh, well, I smoke cigarettes. Okay. Is that the most effective way to relieve your stress? Probably not because smoking cigarettes has a toxic impact on other parts of your body. Tell me other things that you do to relieve stress. Well, I listen to music. Okay. When do you typically listen to music? When I'm having a really terrible day at work. Okay, what kind of music do you listen to? Heavy metal. Okay, how do you feel when you listen to heavy metal? Well, my heart's racing and pumping and like, I'm just like feeling the heavy metal. Okay, how do you feel when you're anxious? My heart's racing and I feel pumped up. All right, so perhaps listening to heavy metal when you are stressed and overwhelmed is not the most effective way to alleviate your anxiety. Let's do the opposite of that. So I always encourage people to go to the opposite feeling that they're seeking. So if anxiety feels heart racing, pumping and intense, do something that is the opposite of that. So if someone is listening to music, okay, is there another genre of music that you listen to? Oh yeah, I like classical music that's a little soft, think ballet, okay, cool. Is there an opportunity for you to download some ballet playlist that you can listen to throughout the day? Not just when you get off of work and you're super high charge and you're just like, I've had it, but can you listen to it throughout the day to get your mind from like super, super high intense to bring it down just a little bit? Because if we can bring it down just an inch, then we're able to keep this new baseline of, oh, wow, 
my heart is not racing all the time. So when the spike happens, that stimulus, external stimulus happens, it's less likely to be as high as it was before because you've kept this stable footing the entire time. Does that make sense? Yes, a lot. Yeah. So that's one example. It's all about, and remember, it's the prevention was the overarching theory there is if we can prevent you from feeling high intense anxiety all the time, then it's going to help you in the long run because when anxiety spikes, because it will, because it's a, it's a natural phenomenon, it's less likely to either be as intense or last as long. That is incredibly interesting how you mentioned practice the coping mechanisms before your actual episode or before your actual like space and, and that creation of that baseline. It makes so much sense. Honestly, I should be taking notes right now. <laughs> like, I, I, I actually picked up the pen. I was like, I should be taking notes right now. <laughs> no, but like, because this is, this is something that I struggle with. Sleep is a huge, huge, um, it's a huge, uh, like something that I really struggle with. Like right now, this is, it's 1am and I'm recording this episode and I'm, I'm wide awake. And this is just such a normal thing for me. But like, uh, I, I do use music as a, as a huge, uh, like a role that a coping mechanism to say the least. And I didn't realize what I was doing is some, is kind of like what you explained. Like I've listened to music throughout the day and there are very specific genres and very specific kind of beats that I try to like incorporate into my daily routine, which kind of helped me stay calm. And I didn't realize that I was creating a baseline, but the idea of mm -hmm. like practicing your coping mechanisms before the actual anxiety, like, especially because I think after a certain amount of time, you tend to like recognize what your triggers are. And like, sometimes you understand what time of the day or like what particular situations sort are of triggers your anxiety. Cause I know personally for me, the time between 2 AM to 4 AM is a very heightened um, anxious time for me. So I try my best to like keep myself busy during those times or things like that, but it has not been as effective, but I'm, I'm very intrigued by this idea of like practicing the coping mechanisms before that heightened response and creating a baseline. Yeah. And I, I love what you said about lifestyle. So it really is the second part of building in effective coping mechanisms is having it as a part of your lifestyle and not as a to-do list item. Oftentimes in anxiety, there's this opportunity for us to avoid. So if it's something, and it's not avoiding in a sense of like, a lot of times people say lazy, and I, I despise the word lazy. It's not laziness. There's a the human nature, the brain functions to avoid things that are not pleasurable or pleasurable enough. So we will always avoid pain. We will always avoid something that is not as pleasurable as something else could be. And so if you have a coping strategy that feels like a to-do list item, inherently at some point you will avoid it. But if it becomes a natural part of your life where it's just, this is just something I do, you know, going back to yoga for a moment, you know, yoga has a utility in it. But if it's not a part of your lifestyle, it's probably not the best recommendation to give somebody, right? If somebody already has it a part of their life or they've brought it to your attention, like, oh, wow, like I've been thinking about trying yoga. 
then find something that's going to work for you. Don't try to squish yourself into this box of like, this has to work because everybody does it this way. Mm -mm. That's where we get into, you got to decolonize that mind to remember that we are not cookie cutters. We're not doing a cookie cutter robotic process. Find the thing that works best for you. And it's guess and check. It's trial and error. You might try something for a couple of times and then realize, you know what, this is not working. Try something else. Don't necessarily give up and say, I'm a lost cause. My anxiety is so terrible. I will never find a solution. No, you just haven't found a solution yet. I, I think that's 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 something so important to like recognize. Like it's not a one size fits all kind of situation when it comes to any sort of coping mechanism. And it's such a trial and error thing. You've got to like, listen. and I think uh, here, I think you'll agree as well. Um, ask the questions, like ask, uh, ask if, if, if I'm supposed to be reacting like this, ask if I am supposed to feel like this after a certain amount of time. Because what happened with me was, is when I started off with therapy, um, I was with a therapist for a couple of months. And again, I had no idea what to expect from this field. And I did as I was told, but I didn't feel like I was making progress. And I did not feel like I didn't enjoy the feelings that I had post my um, assignments or, or whatever the treatment that we were going through. And But in that point in time, all I thought was, is, I don't know anything about this field. Maybe this is how I'm supposed to feel. And I just kept my mouth shut and I continued and, and I realized after a certain point, like, I don't want this. This isn't the kind of feeling that I want. And if I'm putting this much effort into trying to feel a certain way, but I'm getting this, again, this negative sensation, I should ask questions like, is this how I'm supposed to be feeling? And it's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to switch if and like stop if this isn't something you're understanding or like you're liking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But yeah, so... Uh, I think the questions thing was like, because you mentioned it quite a few times about like, ask the questions, ask the questions. And I keep thinking like, I think we aren't told to ask the questions. Like we're sort of like taught to like, okay, they're the professional, they know what they're talking about. But it's, it's, um, it's like you mentioned, it's such a collaborative effort and it's important to like have that sort of space where you ask the questions because you need to understand yourself, like other than you understand yourself the most and the, like you mentioned, it's like you're a guide, like the driving lesson analogy. It made so much sense. Like you're just, they're, they're the ones that they're, they're on the wheel. You're just helping them when they need it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so just, uh, just to sort of like uh, tie this entire discussion um, into like a little present with a bow on it. Could you uh, sort of end up with uh, maybe telling us a little bit of like self-care tips for people who have very stressful lifestyles? Because I think, especially in the current state of the world, I think we're all in this sort of, we put ourselves in this rat race where we're just constantly running and running and running. And I think stress is something so normalized now. And I think mm -hmm. any sort of tips would be helpful for everyone. Yes. So one thing that I, I always recommend to people, and I practice this myself, is to make sure that you have some aspect of your day that is just for you. And the hard part about this is technology, right? Because it's like, oh, well, my day is all just for me because I'm on Instagram and I'm watching Netflix and, you know, and it's like, no. 
we need to reduce the external stimuli and have time that is just for you so that you are the focus of that time. And whether it's three minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes, having that special time just for you is super important. That's number one. The second thing that I could recommend is going back to technology, reducing the amount of ask, reducing the access to technology just by a little bit. I'm not saying you have to go, you know, without technology for a week, which is something that I did and I truly enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I think there is something to be said about reducing our access to technology. One aspect, and I'll get a little nerdy on you. So a lot of people during the global pandemic, they Zooming all the time, just like in front of a screen constantly, because that's really one of the most safe places that we could continue to live and work. Um, and most people through that time purchase blue light glasses. You know, I'm wearing blue light glasses right now. I don't wear glasses to see. And the benefit of reducing your access to technology is that you're actually giving your brain a rest. So the blue light wavelengths that come through technology screens, laptops, TVs, cell phones, tablets, after you either close your eyes or step away from the technology, the blue light actually act, is still activating and running your brain. It's almost as if you're still sitting in front of that device. And so the more that you reduce your access to technology, the more likely your brain is actually going to be able to rest, to recharge, to focus on the other things that you want it to focus on. So those are my, my top two tips. Carve out time that is just for you. Doesn't matter how little or the more the better in my opinion, but it doesn't matter how little, if it's three minutes or more, and then second is reducing your access to technology. Again, it could be three minutes at a time. And if you can't, because of the nature of your work, I highly recommend investing in blue light glasses because this will cause a filter from the screen to your brain to filter out some of that blue light to keep your brain up at night and during the day. So I constantly forget to wear my glasses because that's just the kind of person I am. Now I'm going to keep this in mind and I'm going to put them back on because these are blue light as well. And again, I got it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I did get it because clearly because uh, like school is on Zoom and a lot of my work, like every bit of my work is on a screen, whether it's university stuff or mm -hmm. whether it's the project stuff. So I did like realize like, okay, I'm going to need these but then I keep forgetting to wear them. I will make sure to remember these, this specific tip now. <laughs> but uh, seriously, Aisha, thank you so much for taking the time to like breaking down so many different topics for us and in such an incredibly understanding way. Like I've genuinely learned so much from this discussion and like so many tips that I can, um, I can personally practice in my own life. And I'm, I'm sure that the listeners are gonna learn so much um, do you have any final thoughts or any words you want to leave for the listeners before we end? Yeah, you know, again, I just want to thank you so much, Neha, for inviting me to do this. This was a joy for me and was truly the highlight of my day. So, and will be the highlight of my week, I think. So thank you oh, so much for so this much. opportunity. It was, <laughs> it was so much fun. 
Um, I would just say for all of your listeners out there, just know that you truly aren't alone in your experience that you're having, whether it's anxiety or any other life experience that you're currently having or had in the past, you don't have to feel as though that you're alone because you're not. So whether it is safe for you to reach out for help, I don't know. But if it is safe for you to reach out for help, please do so, because there are people waiting for you to embrace your life fully, and you deserve so much in life, and I hope that you reach out and get it. Those are incredible words to end by.